Water. It's finite, it's irreplaceable, and it's critical to life itself. Not to mention to most other human needs and joys. So, what happens when the modern wells run dry? When this water crisis began, they were saying that the taps were going to be turned off in April if they didn't get more water in their reserves. Or, what if the taps keep running, but the water can't be used? Flint's tap water was laced with dangerous levels of lead. The state knew about it and did nothing. Do people have a right to water? Do they have a right to clean water? Just next to this filthy water filled with trash and sewage is where the neighborhood queues up every single day, and they do so because this is a tap that the government turns on three times a day without it. What would it take to ensure that right for everyone? This past winter, the state of Arizona passed a drought contingency plan, and it acknowledges the fact that the Colorado River is providing less water than it used to to the seven states that depend on it. And what will happen moving into the future as climate change alters the distribution of water on Earth and as shifting diets and farming practices change our needs for water. My name is Catherine Rehimaki, and my guest today is Farhana Sultana. She's associate professor at Syracuse University in the Department of Geography. She writes about the right to water and, among other publications, has edited a book whose title neatly summarizes the challenges, Eating, Drinking, Surviving. Farhana, welcome to All for Earth. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, let's start with the big picture. Is there enough clean, fresh water for everyone on Earth? There is and there isn't. There is, but it's very unevenly distributed. And as a result, currently there is over a billion people on Earth who do not have access to clean, safe water on a daily basis. And we're seeing about 500,000 annual deaths that are water-related, whether that's water contamination or waterborne diseases, and approximately 1,000 deaths of children under the age of five daily. So we're seeing quite a difference between those who can turn the tap on and take water for granted, and then those for whom water is literally a matter of life and death. Um, and of the way we use water, about... Um, 70% is used for agriculture, and then 20% for industry, and only 10% for municipality and domestic use. So that seems important to know, because I think a lot of people have a sense that, you know, when water is scarce, that, you know, we need to turn off our faucets, or um, take shorter showers, or don't uh, water our lawns, for example, um, which may be important, but the... Um, you know, so much of the water that we use, the fresh water that we use, actually goes to agriculture and to industrial uses. Um, yes, personal responsibility is important, but at the same time, there's a huge amount of water that's wasted in agricultural production. So it's water for cash crops. Some of it evaporates and then comes back to the watershed as precipitation, whereas a lot of it is runoff. But it's often contaminated with various uh, chemicals, whether it's pesticides, fertilizers, uh, or various feed, and not easily usable without further treatment. But a lot of the water leaves the watershed as what's called virtual water uh, through agriculture products. And so what that means is that if you're exporting, say, a juicy tomato that you're taking the water that's kind of embedded within the the meat of the tomato and moving that, but also 
the water that it took to grow the tomato plant that produced the tomato is also sort of virtually being transported from where the tomato was grown to wherever it's being consumed. Yes. Uh, For instance, if you measure your water footprint, which is um, something you can do online, you can see how water that you use in everyday life and every item and service or uh, goods that you consume all contain water from somewhere else. So the amount of water that goes into producing a pair of jeans is not necessarily the water that's leaving with the pair of jeans, but that went into its production and various stages of its production. Got it. So are there places in the world where the conflicting uses really comes into play, Um, you know, where agricultural needs, manufacturing needs, and direct human consumption are in conflict with each other? Yeah, almost everywhere on Earth. Uh, (laughs) We don't often see it. But what we're seeing is, for instance, uh, recently as last year, uh, as Cape Town approached what was called day zero, the day that the city would run out of water, was because there was a lot of water that was being used for various other reasons. And we're seeing it also in, for instance, in southwestern United States with what's happening with the Colorado River and how water is allocated, whether it's to the city of Los Angeles or San Diego or to agriculture in California versus, let's say, how much water is left for Native Americans to use. So we're seeing these kinds of water distribution and inequities uh, problems all over the world, but only few grab news headlines when they become (laughs) a crisis or they hit a a, a tipping point. Are there particular hotspots around the world that you view are critical places for water and water access? So there are many places, particularly in the global south or developing countries where there's inadequate potable water in cities and in rural areas, either due to water contamination or inadequate water distribution. But then there are also hotspots in the global north or in the advanced industrialized countries, such as places like Flint, Michigan, or Native American reservations. So water quality, quantity, affordability, reliability, accessibility, all become really important to think about because the hotspots are the ones that often make headlines, but then there are also many hotspots that don't, except for cases like Flint that have recently gotten a lot of attention and galvanized some action. And, And what does it mean to those areas to have water scarcity? I mean, what, what does that mean that they can't do that, um, you know, people who live in more water-rich areas might be able to? So water scarcity or water insecurity is really linked to social inequities. So people who are poorer, who are often racialized, or who are minority populations in different places, do not therefore have the water they need for their flourishing for their health, for their public health, for the opportunity to have access to jobs, to have better human dignity and how they live. Inadequate amounts of water impact their ability to live full human lives. So this brings me to kind of one of the interesting parts of your biography. Um, You started out as a geoscience student um, 
but you're in a much more interdisciplinary program now in geography, um, and you have affiliations with tons of programs, some of which I think are uh, maybe obvious, uh, international relations, for example. Um, Some are not as obvious, like women's and gender studies. Um, Can you talk a little bit about why that affiliation in particular is so important when you think about water issues? Yeah, as I've increasingly moved uh, from the natural sciences to the social sciences and also worked for the United Nations for a while, I've become much more attuned uh, with the way water comes to affect all aspects of human life and human society as we know it. And that led me to also then discover that water is entirely a gender issue. Because if you close your eyes and think about who is fetching the water in parts of Africa, Latin America, and Asia, or even in the advanced industrialized worlds, it's usually women and girls. And so water scarcity intersects with gender equality and as well as uh, issues around uh, poverty, well-being, education, public health in multiple ways, and it affects a certain segment of the population much more harshly. And that's what led me to become much more interested in the in the social aspect of water, or the social life of water. Is that true of um, developed countries as well in, in the modern, that it, it's still kind of a gendered um, issue? Um, it is, depending on where you are. Even in the advanced industrialized world, you, we have pockets of inequities and actually a lot of pockets of inequities. So if you go to places like Flint or Detroit or Baltimore in the United States, there are many households where it's often the mothers or the daughters or the grandmothers who are much more worried about day-to-day provisioning of water for drinking water, for cooking, for sanitation, uh, for cleaning, for bathing, for laundry, than you'll find other household members. So some of that carries through um, even in so-called advanced industrialized world where water security does not exist. Got it. You have on your website an eye-catching photo of you meeting the Pope. Um, and can you talk a little bit about kind of what what that was about and, again, the mm-hmm. kind of intersections of this work in ways that might surprise people? So there was a conference uh, that was organized by the Pontifical Academy of Sciences at the Vatican in 2017 on the human right to water. And I was invited as a speaker uh, to the workshop and Pope Francis was also a speaker at the workshop. So there was a great opportunity to meet Pope Francis. And the topic of the workshop is something that's very close to his heart. He's very interested in issues around climate change and water. There were people from academia, industry, labor unions, um, citizens groups. So what this workshop focused on was how do we address these issues around the human right to water? Because it's a real challenge. It's a challenge uh, to fulfill this need in many countries, in many societies, uh, especially in water-scarce areas. So the discourses around the right to water have actually galvanized uh, people from around the world, especially poor people and disenfranchised people, to demand what's called water democracy and citizen participation in water management. And as a product of this workshop, uh, the 2017 Rome Declaration of the Human Right to Water and Sanitation was declared uh, that uh, Pope Francis signed. And it was to reiterate, or rather to reinforce the importance 
of looking at how social inequities are linked to water insecurity. So um, I want to segue into thinking about solutions. And one of the things that is missing in what you've talked about just now is technology, um, which might surprise some people. Um, what, what is the role of technology in fixing some of the issues in which people don't have access to sufficient clean water to have a dignified life? So technology definitely has its place, but it's really important to recognize that not all technology or technocratic approaches to issue solutions to water crises uh, will be appropriate or as important as we think. Because water is fundamentally a social political issue, that it's about power relations, it's about who has the right to decide whose voice counts and what kind of solution is offered. And because it's so contextual, there isn't a specific technology that will solve um, all problems everywhere. So what needs to be uh, worked out is in each context, what technology makes sense. So for instance, in the United States, we have a lot of aging infrastructure that needs to be replaced so that we can reduce the number of flints that are happening throughout the country in terms of water contamination from the technology of the water infrastructure. How about another solution that's sometimes raised, which is um, changing our diets? Um, given the what we talked about earlier about virtual water and the water that's embedded in um, the the food that's grown as well as the animals, you know what what role does a change in diet play in solving some of these issues? So changing diet does reduce the amount of water that goes into agricultural uh, crop production as well as um, agricultural meat production. But at the same time, it's a small amount uh, because not many people in the global south and the developing countries eat a large amount of meat. So a lot of what we're seeing is agricultural uh, water being used to produce the feed for the animals that are then consumed. So large tracts of the Amazon forest were clear cut to produce uh, crops to feed cattle in the U.S., which then end up becoming um, various uh, meat products. If we think about how we impact the world through the various forms of water usage, you'll find that a lot of it is through not only diet, but also lifestyle, um, through usage of electricity, through usage of other kinds of consumable products. And as a result, diet is a, a large part, but it is a part in a larger picture. So all of these things all of us are implicated in often do not become part of dinner table conversation, but really should. Water is interesting because it seems like it can be thought of as a local issue, but also um, we are tied to other geographic areas through the food that we're eating. Um, you and I both live in a fairly water-rich area. What advice do you have for people, whether they're in a situation of water scarcity or not, for how they can help make progress on these issues? So to take better action, you need to first be educated on these water issues. So you can go measure your water footprint online and then become much more critically aware. 
I would advocate for developing a water ethic. So that means shifting practices, having a much more ethical relationship towards water and how water is linked to everyday habits, everyday lifestyle. And fundamentally, lastly, is to ensure that principles of equity, collaboration and and inclusivity are central to all of this, because we need to really have um, a better understanding of how water is very much a moral issue. And as a result, that will help us think about much better transformations that are equitable and inclusive in order to fight for water justice for all. So when you look forward to the mid-century or 2100, are you are you hopeful for what the future holds? Uh, yes, I'm hopeful because young people give me hope about the future. They're much more um, active in terms of raising awareness and much more vocal. They're much more interested in what's happening to their environment than I think perhaps uh, any other generation um, that's come before us. I think young people globally right now are much more aware of environmental justice issues, water justice and climate justice issues. And even if the future may look very daunting with the coming climate crises, I think with greater political engagement and improving democratic processes, I think there's real hope um, because things will not change unless they're made to. I think that's a great place to finish our conversation today. Um, Farhana, thank you so much for all of the insight you've brought on, uh, you know, the many, many ways in which we interact with water and the different ways in which we might impact the future of water. Um, So best of luck to you with all of your efforts here. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you for having me. I really appreciated this. Farhana Sultana is a Syracuse University faculty member affiliated with many, many programs. She has a new book called Water Politics, Governance, Justice, and the Right to Water. You can read more about her work on her website, farhanasultana.com. Please subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, be well. All for Earth is a production of the Princeton Environmental Institute and the Princeton University Office of Communications in collaboration with Princeton's Council on Science and Technology and assistance from the Office of Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. Our executive producer is Margaret Koval, and our audio engineer and editor is Daniel Kearns. The opinions expressed here represent the views of the individuals involved and not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on all major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and the Google Podcast apps.